So there's lots of scary words that you hear in life. Um, probably for us guys, if we're honest, one of the more scary things is, is hearing the words, we're pregnant. Now, honestly, I, I've, I've wanted to be a father my whole life. It's something that I've honestly been, and there's no surprise, okay, there's no, we're not pregnant, okay, just FYI, okay, so we'll just set that one aside and get that out of the way. But having kids was something that I've always wanted to have. I have, uh, it's something that I've been excited for. Uh, but what's interesting is, is that um, having a son, while being something that I want to do really well, I want to be a good dad to a son, it felt like it was kind of in my wheelhouse, right? You know, you look down and it's like mini-me, right? You know, it, it's, it's not something scary. I've been a boy all my life, so I'm sure I can figure out how to raise a boy. And so I wasn't too... Uh, too nervous. I mean, anybody who's sane knows that being a parent is something that should make you nervous because there's a lot of, lot of stuff on your plate. But having a son, I, I wasn't too worried about. But when I got the news that I was having a daughter, the apprehension and the fear began welling up in me. I kind of figured I would have some time to screw up a few boys before I got to a daughter um, and, and had the opportunity to raise a daughter. I'd read all the parenting books, and I knew that daughters and fathers have a very special bond. I'd heard quotes like this, I'm not a princess because I have a prince. I'm a princess because my father's a king. Like, whoa, that's some high expectations. Or this one, a daughter needs a dad to be the standard by which all other men in her life will be judged. Whew. Being a daddy's girl is like having permanent armor on for the rest of your life. Yeah, no pressure, right? <laughs> I mean, I think of it, I think of like Kobe Bryant, who passed away a couple years ago. He had some devotion to his daughters. In fact, he coined the term girl dad, which has become something of a, of a mantra to say, I have a girl, and I'm going to let the world know that I'm raising a girl. See, I, I wasn't disappointed that I had a girl. I was just disappointed that I didn't have a few, few do-overs because of the boys that came before her. And so I, I kind of figured, you know, I know a lot of really godly men that have terrible fathers or no fathers, and so I knew that there was hope if I wasn't a very good father. But I, I, I did not want to pour my life into a princess and mess her up. Because honestly, having a little girl is an incredible thing. You know, and I didn't know it at the time, but I, I didn't, and if I'm honest with myself now, I wasn't ready for my heart to be as full as it is having a daughter. I wasn't, I wasn't ready to, to have that much love, and, and, and I love my sons very much, and, and it's, but it's just different with dads and daughters. And today, we get to see not only Jesus' heart towards all of us, but especially you ladies in the room. You get to see Jesus' heart for you. See, both of these girls in this story, both of these women are daughters, and that's an important point, and that's the point Matthew is making here. Matthew's point is that daughters are loved by their heavenly father, which means, yes, even sons are too. We get to go along with that. So here's our big idea. Christ's father-like love is displayed in the healing of the daughters. Christ's father-like love is displayed in the healing of the daughters. See, there's, there's some compassion and there's love here. You know, even though that word is not mentioned in this passage, it is 
absolutely throughout. We see that Jesus is loving these people. He loves the father as he comes and pleads for his daughter to come back to life. He loves the little daughter who is there on the bed, not breathing. And he loves the woman who for 12 years of her life has been suffering. The compassion is here. He says, take courage, meaning I am with you. I am here with you in your suffering. I am there. And that's the best news, the best news we can have. See, these miracles are the desperation miracles. Matthew's been doing these pairs of miracles throughout, and we've had wild miracles where there's a storm, and then there's a demon. We've had miracles where there's different health issues, but this is the desperation time. This is both people are at the end of their rope. There's nowhere else to go, and so they turn to Christ. And the key here is, is that Christ hears them and is with them. So here we go. We're going to start right into it, starting in verse 18. This is the surprise visit. So this is not expected. Verse 18, while he was saying these things, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. So again, behold, this is one of those pay attention moments. It's a surprise this desperate father looking for help. See, most of us are probably familiar with the Mark version of this story, which is the story of Jairus and the woman with bleeding. So the, the Mark's version is a much bigger version. Matthew's is more streamlined and gets right to the point. This little girl, this, this daughter of this ruler has died, and he is sorrowful, he is desperate. There is no hope. This ruler, what does it mean that he's a ruler? Well, what it means is he was in charge of the synagogue. So the synagogue is where the Jews would get together and have church each Saturday on the Sabbath, and they would read from the Old Testament, and they have a set reading log. This guy would have been the guy that probably would have read the Scripture. He would have been the one to organize other readings and things like that. This was an elected official. He was chosen from all the people in the area, and because of the fact that he was most likely wealthy, because later on we see that he has professional mourners at his daughter's funeral, that people would have thought, well, you're wealthy, so therefore God must be blessing you. Again, missing the point that if you're blessed in this life, it means that God must love you. And so he would have been wealthy. He would have been well-known. He would have been somebody that in Capernaum, everybody would have known who it was. And so he shows up. Now, where are we at this point? Well, if you remember last week, we are surrounded by Pharisees and John's disciples and Jesus' disciples. So Jesus is in an area with all of these people around. And all of a sudden, this ruler, who we hear the name Jairus in Mark, but we're just going to call him the ruler because Matthew didn't think it was important to call his name. So this ruler comes walking up. And what are the Pharisees thinking at this point? You know, this is a guy who knows his Bible. This is a guy who's well-respected. The Pharisees have got to been going, Oh boy, Jesus, you're in for it now. Oh, I know that this guy's got a good question. Ooh, get him, right? That's what they're thinking. But instead, this man walks up. You can kind of see that it would part because he's an important person. He walks up, and what does he do? He falls down on his knees before Jesus. The word there is worshiped. It said that he got down and worshiped before Jesus. This man that they thought was going to question or correct or rebut Jesus instead falls on his knees and says, help me, I need your help. 
The Pharisees have got to be thinking everybody's losing their minds at this point with all the things that are happening in response to this. But look at this right here. It says, my daughter has just died, but there's faith there. He goes, my daughter is dead, but Jesus, I know that you can make her undead. I know that you can heal her. I know that you can save her. He's asking Jesus to do something he has not done yet. He's saying, Jesus, conquer death. You've conquered leprosy. You've conquered demons. You've conquered storms. You've conquered all sorts of things. Come and conquer death for me, please. One author puts it this way. The man is saying, my daughter has died, but I have faith in you. I may not know who you are. You could be a prophet, the Messiah, God. What I do know is that God is with you, just like he was with Elijah, just like he was with Elisha. And just as they raise the dead, I know you can as well, because God is with you. See, this great faith. We see that he doesn't go anywhere else. We have no record of him trying other healers, any magic potions, abracadabra, nothing like that. Instead, he comes straight to Jesus. And second, his posture, this posture of worship. We saw this with the Magi when Jesus was first born. We saw this with the leper. We will see this. In Revelation chapter 5, where the seraphim and the cherubim, that if one appeared right here, right now, we would all fall down as if dead. Those incredible beings are bowing before the lamb who was slain. And so this is a perfect posture for him to be in. And the lesson here is simple. We don't need to go to anyone else for our needs. If we can't get our needs met, Jesus is the one that will meet our needs. He will take care of us. The good news about the gospel is not clean yourself up and go see Jesus and then he'll accept you. It's go see Jesus, he'll accept you, then he's going to clean you up. And that's the best news in the world because none of us are ever going to get clean enough to go to Jesus. See, the Bible does not promise us that we will never die. The death rate is still one per person. And Lazarus got two. Right? God does not always save us from death. No, but the Bible promises that death is not the end. Death is not the final place for those who are in Christ. Instead, it's the beginning of real life. Because ultimately, we all know, death loses in the end. Death will be destroyed by Christ. Verse 19, so Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. Now, at this point, the story comes to a screeching halt right? You're kind of following the story along and you're going, he's going to go save that girl. Let's see. And then boom, it stops at this moment. Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wants us to see something. This actually happened, yes, but he wants us to catch what the point of this miracle, these two miracles are. And we'll see if we can catch it together. So in verse 20, we see the first touch. We see that there is a touch that leads to healing. Verse 20, and behold, another behold, surprise, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. This woman was suffering from chronic uterine hemorrhaging, which would make her ritually unclean. We find this throughout the Old Testament laws, but we see it specifically in Leviticus 15, where there's a nice long passage about all sorts of discharges and things like that that would make you unclean. Leviticus sums it up this way. Thus you shall keep the people of Israel separate from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness by defiling my tabernacle that is in their midst. 
This is the law for him who has a discharge, for as an emission of semen becoming unclean thereby, also for who is, her who is unwell with menstrual impurity, that is for anyone, male or female, who has a discharge, for the man who lies with a woman who is unclean. This entire section is about all the uncleanness that happens because of our bodies. And the penalties are as being kicked out of the, the city, whipping, or even death, depending on how bad it is. This isn't meant to be a biology lesson and to teach us about all the things that our bodies don't do well. Instead, it's to let us know that if we're honest and we look through the Old Testament, most of us are unclean most of the time, according to these rules. As a matter of fact, all of us are unclean, and we see this because our relationship with Christ is unclean. Look what Isaiah 64 says. We have all become like one who is unclean. All our righteous uh, deeds are polluted garments. That means it's a garment that has unclean. That's what our deeds are to Christ. That's what our deeds are to God. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. See, left to ourselves, like I said a minute ago, we can't clean ourselves up to make us acceptable to God. We need a helper. We need the sanitizing power of the Holy Spirit in us. See, this woman was not in danger of physical death. She wasn't going to die from what she had. But however, she was an outsider. She would have been treated almost like a leper. Earlier in Leviticus 15, anything she touched became unclean. So that means if she goes to someone's house and sits on one of their chairs, it's unclean. If she touches a fork, it's unclean. She touches a doorknob. Okay, they didn't have doorknobs. But if she touches the door on the way in, it's unclean. Now think about it if you were in the place of the person whose house she came to visit. Oh, next week we're taking our kid to be dedicated at the temple. Just like what Jesus had when he was uh, in his early teens. Oh, but you know what? So-and-so came to visit and I just touched the wall where she touched it. I'm unclean. We can't go. Talk about ruining your plans. Or even the day before going to church, Sabbath is on Saturday, Friday. You see her and she comes in and she sits down on your chair and then you forget about it and you sit on the chair and now you're unclean. See, this is the world that this woman lived in. She lived in a place where everything she touched, she left a residue of uncleanness. That's a crazy way to have to think about our world. She was outside of her family, most likely even outside of culture, for over a decade. What were you doing 12 years ago? What have you done for 12 years straight? Every single day. See, she's having to think about this over and over and over again. Now, wouldn't you at this point be mad at God? Because this uncleanness, I mean, it doesn't affect your life other than the fact it makes it so you can't go near God, and anybody who comes near you can't go near God. Wouldn't you be mad at God at this point? I think I would have been. It wasn't just 10 days that she had to stay away. It wasn't two years of masking. It was 12 years of nothing with her family, nothing with her church, nothing with her society. I mean, think about that, where she's at. No wonder she is desperate to even touch Jesus. No wonder she's desperate to have that relationship restored. And I think it's amazing. There's faith here in that she didn't give up on God even after 12 years of terribleness. She didn't give up on God. Verse 21, for she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Now she knows 
that even a slight touch of the garment, even a bumping into Jesus is going to make him unclean. But she is at a point where she is so desperate. Even She's just holding out any hope at all. If this person's from God, maybe just a touch will be all that I need. Maybe she thought it was magical. Maybe she was superstitious or something like that. And Jesus comes in and helps her see what actually is behind all of this. She had a childish faith, but she also had a childlike faith. And Jesus goes, your faith, the fact that you've not given up on God, is going to make you well. Don't get yourself cleaned up before you come to God. Come to God and let him clean you up. Now what's amazing here is that Jesus is so super clean that he works backwards, right? So she's unclean, and remember, whenever she touched anything, it would make that thing unclean. And then they touch something else, and that's unclean, and just boggles the mind. Did that touch that, or did that, uh, right? Jesus works backwards. Jesus is clean, is so clean that it makes everything else around it clean. Parents, wouldn't you love it if your kids were able to have something so clean that it just made all of them clean nonstop? But see, Jesus does that with the uncleanliness of all of us. See, when we come into relationship with Christ, his cleanness is so powerful, it doesn't leave us where we are. It continues to work out in us more and more cleanliness. And we call that sanctification. We call that his righteousness. We call that being holy. All of those words are the same thing. It's Jesus' cleanliness working its way through all of us. Verse 22, Jesus turned and seeing her said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. Daughter, Jesus calls her daughter. See, we usually associate the fatherly love with God the Father. But the thing is, the triune God is so fatherly, it spills over into all three of the Trinity, and it just pours out. And right here, Jesus can't help himself but say, you have faith in me, that makes you my adopted daughter. You're my daughter. You're no one else's daughter, you're my daughter. That love The fatherly love of God is so strong, it just comes out of Jesus. And Jesus is going to care for both of these daughters, because earlier the same word that was used for daughter was what the ruler used, and now Jesus uses it for her. This is the point, is that they're both the same. They're daughters of the king. You know, in this this moment, there's a crowd around Jesus. These Pharisees and these disciples of John and the disciples of Jesus, plus just people are following him around. We've seen this before. We see it now. And this woman comes up and and reaches out and touches the edge of his garment. And I'm reminded last week, um, last Saturday, I was in Chicago at O'Hare Airport, which is a crazy big airport. I had to walk from one side to the other. Luckily, I had a six-hour layover so I could saunter. Um, but it was getting ready for St. Patrick's Day. It was, get, it was spring break. It was just crazy. I mean, in Portland, we've got our two check-in sides, right, to go through security. They have like 40 of those, and there's just people everywhere, and it's just crazy. And you see people doing the home alone, running through the airport trying to catch their, their airplane, and you see people from all sorts of different places. You see rich people. You see poor people. You see white, black, men, women, and you go, wow, I'm really insignificant. I doubt there's a single person in this, I don't know, 20,000, 30,000 people walking around in this airport that knows who I am. 
or would even miss me if I were gone. Talk about insignificant. See, Jesus is in the same place. He's surrounded by all these well-to-dos, important people, people that he's going to pour his life into and the disciples. And this nobody, this outsider, comes up and touches his garment and he stops and looks at her. See, I think that tells us something. That tells us something about Christ is that there's nobody on earth that does not have the option of having an audience with the king. There's nobody who is so far gone that the king cannot have a relationship with him. He sees all of us. We can have his full undivided attention. Sadly, most of us don't want that. So he says, take heart, daughter. He's bringing her back. He's saying, listen, you're a part of my family. This is what makes you well, is that you're a part of my family. Not a part of the family that's been ostracizing you, not a part of the synagogue family, but you're a part of mine. Jesus doesn't rebuke her. Jesus shows his heart for her, his tenderness and compassion, which is God's heart for all of his daughters. He says, take heart. This was the same phrase we saw two weeks ago. It basically means there's nothing to be afraid of. That's the word the Lord uses here. Child, what are you afraid of? There's nothing to fear. I am here. There's a reason why we say take courage and not make courage. Courage is not something that's generated It's something that's received. It comes from the presence of one who is stronger than us. A good parent, good father, when a child is scared, doesn't go, knock it off, go be brave. That's bad. That's bad parenting. Instead, they walk in the room and they go, you don't need to be afraid. I'm here. There's no monster. There's just the dad. And actually, if we look at it in Scripture, we see this throughout, don't we? We'll just do a quick summary of a few of the places. Israelites are going into the promised land, and they're scared. What does God say? Don't be frightened. Don't be dismayed. Be brave. No, he says, don't be dismayed. I am going with you. I am here with you. When they're facing the exile, Isaiah's message from God is not, fear not. Make courage. Fear not. I am going with you. I am there with you. Jeremiah, doubting whether God could fulfill the promises and his purposes, God says to Jeremiah, do not be afraid, for I am with you. At the end of Matthew, when Jesus says, okay, I'm I'm, I'm leaving, you guys are going to go out and share the gospel with everywhere, every place, the Great Commission, do not be afraid, but behold, I am with you to the end of the age. He's right there with us. When the Apostle Paul faces threats and persecutions in Acts 18, the Holy Spirit comes to him and says, do not be afraid, do not be silent, I am with you. Do you see what's going on here? Whatever we're facing, no matter what it may be, whatever that thing is that's causing fear in us, it is not greater than the God of the universe who is with us. God says, I am with you. His touch is available for all. It doesn't matter the crowd that's surrounding him. His touch is right there. And his touch is healing. And it's that clean touch that works backwards. It makes us more clean. This lady wanted physical healing, but she got so much more. The word well there means to be rescued from from death to life. That's pretty amazing that that's what Jesus did. And immediately she was healed. I'm reminded of a story from the the children's book, The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis. In this story, there's a, a girl named Jill Pohl. 
and, and this is her first time being in Narnia. And she comes into Narnia, and she hasn't had anything to eat, and she's really, she's, she's thirsty, she's hungry, but thirst is the big deal. And so she goes looking for a creek, and as she walks up to the creek, she sees the big lion, Aslan. And of course, she freaks out, because in our world, the lions eat us. In, Aslan, in Aslan's world, in Narnia, he is the Christ. So she walks up, and she goes, can, 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 you, can you move? And Aslan just growls kind of a low, rumbly, purring growl. Will you promise to not do anything to me if I come to drink? Aslan says, I make no promises. She goes, do you, do you eat girls? And he goes, well, actually, I've swallowed up girls and boys, men and women, kings and emperors, cities and realms. To which Jill goes, okay, I guess I'll go somewhere else. Aslan goes, there is nowhere else. See, that's what Christ has to be for us. Christ is not the safe bet. Christ is the only bet. Christ is not the safe option, the one that's like, well, you know, it's the least, least risk. No, it's the only option. To come to Christ is the only way to live. This woman came to Christ and drank and lived. That's the same offer to all of us here today. Our only hope is Jesus. He is the only option. So now as we turn to the original story and we get back into it, we get to the second touch. And let's see if we can see the same thing here. Verse 23, when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion. Now that's an interesting thing because when we look at funerals, it's not a commotion. There's not flute players, okay? But in this day and age, funerals were loud. Funerals were rambunctious in that people were encouraged to mourn and wail and yell and scream. And the richer you were, the louder the funeral had to be. So these flute players would have been hired, or they may have even been family members, but they were making a loud commotion saying, someone has died. You know, and this is a weird place to be in. In my life, I've seen several dead bodies. The first one that I remember seeing was my father who had passed away in our house. Um, I went on to work at the operating room at Emmanuel Hospital where we had some emergencies come in, emergency room come in, and people passed away. Unfortunately, they were not able to save them. And so as I was cleaning up the anesthetic machines, that's what I was doing, that was my job at the time, I was in the room with the dead body. And I tell you, being in the room with the dead body, there is something... There's, the body is so still. There is something definitely wrong when you look at the body. And, I, you know, movies can't really show that. In movies, yeah, they have actors who, I don't know how they do it, but they just do that far-off stare and they, they're, they're gone. But still, there's still movement there. But the dead body is so still. Our eyes actually play tricks on us when we look at them and we imagine movement and we imagine breathing because we're so used to everybody moving that our mind tricks us. There is definitely something distant between a dead body and a living body. J.C. Ryle says, it's the mightiest gulf that has been placed between us and the departed. And if we think about it, you know, like I said, last week I was in Chicago. I was in Illinois, a thousand miles away from my family. Death is even farther than the farthest you can go on earth. It is so far. And yet, Right here, Christ steps in and he destroys death for this little girl as a picture of what's coming for all of us if we're in Christ. Verse 24, 
Go away, for the little girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. Literally mocking and ridiculing Jesus. They're going, you're so full of yourself, Jesus. You're the healing guy. You're late. You can't do anything now. You know, this isn't like the medical doctor House. You remember that show? Where House was kind of a jerk, but he was also the hero of the show, and he would step in and go, you misdiagnosed this. She's not dead. She's in a coma. That's not what Jesus does. Jesus doesn't come in and go, you guys got it wrong. She's actually still alive. No, instead, he's not denying her death. He's coming in and redefining her death. He's saying this is but a time of sleep before she comes back as a picture of what we are going to all experience if Christ delays and we are not here when he returns. Verse 25, when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand and the girl arose. I love that. He takes her by the hand. His touch worked backwards and brought her back to life. This phrase, put outside, is too mild of a term. It's the word ekbalo in the Greek, which means to exercise, which means to kick them out. So this is Jesus raising his voice and going, get out! Get out of here! I'm about to do something with this girl. I'm going to bring her back to life. You all get out. They went outside and kept mourning only to see the little girl get up and walk out the door to them. I sure as heck hope that the celebrating was as loud as the morning. Don't you? So Jesus' unique authority and power are at work here. We see the young one, we see the mature one, we see the poor one, we see the rich one, but Jesus heals both immediately with his compassion, his love for each of them. We need to remember that bodily restoration is a part of the gospel. Part of the promise that we have is not only that we get to be in eternity with God, which is the best promise of them all, and that one dwarfs all the rest, but also in the fine print in there is that we get new resurrected bodies that will work rightly, that will work well. And times like this, it's it's so clear. So Jesus crosses the gulf, that gulf between death and life, and blows it up and brings the little lady right back to her daddy. What a cool story. J.C. Ryle says again, this is the kind of truth we can never know too well. The more clearly we see Christ's power, the more likely we are to realize gospel peace. Our position may be trying. Our hearts may be weak. The world may be difficult to journey through. Our faith may seem too small to carry us home. But let us take courage when we think on Jesus and not be cast down, because greater is he that is for us than all those who are against us. Our Savior can raise the dead. Our Savior is almighty. And then verse 26, are we surprised? The report of this went through all the district. This was Christ's greatest miracle yet. The story spread from Capernaum to Jerusalem to Damascus to Rome to London, to New York, to Chicago, to Portland, to Gladstone. And it's still spreading today. Christ's resurrecting power is too good to keep to ourselves. The Puritans called this the death of death, and they wrote on it quite a bit. Jesus takes the curse of Adam that was brought into the world and destroys it. The death of Christ brings death to our spiritual death. The resurrection of Christ brings death to our physical death. We will rise bodily again. One author writes, Since Christ died and rose again, we are united to him. Though we may die, we also will rise again to a better life. See, this is the high point 
of chapter 8 and 9 is that Jesus says, I am over death. I have conquered death. Sickness, storms, demons, that's the small stuff. Now I've shown you I can do the greatest. So we remember the good father doesn't tell his kids, just make courage. He says, don't be afraid, I'm right there with you. The difference is is that Jesus' fatherliness knows that there is a boogeyman in the room. He knows there's a boogeyman, and that boogeyman is death. And so like any good father, you touch my daughter, boy, you're going to get it. And Jesus takes out the boogeyman. He takes out death. It has lost its sting. He's destroyed it. So sisters in Christ, Jesus cares for you. We can't miss this here. So much of the time, all of our talk is about sons, or we use some gender-neutral term like us or we, but get this here. Matthew's point, guys, you're listening in. This is for the ladies. Daughters, you are loved in Christ. So much of the time, our world puts God and ladies at odds. Jesus doesn't allow that to happen. He says, they're my daughters. Don't touch my daughters. No matter how your earthly father failed you, no matter how you've been mistreated or hurt, whether your condition is unashamedly or shamefully your own and you own it, this does not disqualify you from Christ. He looks on you with compassion. He looks at you and says, I love you like a good daddy loves his daughter. He says, trust me, I'll make you well. I'll heal your chronic condition called sin. I'll save you from the final enemy, that boogeyman called death. If you'll just take my hand, death itself cannot even touch you. And one day, I will wake you up from sleep. No more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, for the old things have passed away. Daughters, that is for you. That is a hundred percent for you. But we know women are not the only ones who need this. We also, as men, need this as well. We need to see the Father's love for his daughters. And men, we need to emulate that. We need to love our daughters that way. We need to love our wives that way. We need to love every single one of God's precious women that we encounter on a daily basis that way because that's the way the Lord loves us. Beloved sons and cherished daughters. The peculiar kind of love, condescending and deep compassion and personal delight and fierceness of a good father is found in our God towards us. In the ruler's heart, we saw that he loved his daughter. In Jesus' heart, we see even more love. We see even greater love. He looks on us with compassion, delight, and protective affection that a daddy has for his little girl. It's good for us men, but it's great for us women as well, alike to know that God loves us greater than the best dad on the planet greater than the best father, and that love does not end. Let's let's celebrate that now as we get some time to sing about God's love moving forward. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that we are beloved by you. Lord, thank you that whether we are a daughter or a son of you, if we are a part of your family, Lord, your love is beyond explanation beyond our understanding. Thank you for being that good father. 
Lord, I pray that this would really settle on us, Lord, that you would work this in, that you love us, not because of what we've done, but because you're a good father. Bring us to love you more and know you better. Lord, take this time now as we worship you in song to be pleased and be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen.